Good morning. Did you guys have a good Christmas? Wow. <laughs> that was awesome. I can tell. You guys are doing great. I hope you've had a better Christmas than you were responding. Uh, so I want to tell you a little Christmas story real quick. So there's this little boy, right? And uh, this little boy, he, he, he just like racks in Christmas presents. I mean, it is the Christmas of his dreams, right? He's got all the toys, all the stocking stuffers he could imagine. It's all there. And so for the next day and a half, this boy is playing with all his new toys. And he's so excited as he understands that Christmas means I get so much cool things, right? He's got this excitement to him. And so he runs in and he asks his mom, let's do Christmas again. And his mom explains, no, no, Christmas happens once a year. You're just going to have to wait. So the next day, the mom's walking through, and she sees the little boy just sitting on the couch, just sitting there, doing nothing, just sitting there. And she thinks that's a little odd because what little boy just sits still for any length of time? And she walks on, and 30 minutes later, she comes back, and the little boy is still just sitting on the couch. She goes, son, what are you doing? <sighs> Waiting. Waiting for what? Christmas to come again? All right, simple story. Here's the thought. Some of us think of waiting like that, right? Some of us remember when we had to go on a trip in a car before we had iPads and everything else, and you're just sitting in the back seat. If you're old enough, you would lay it up in the back of the back seat, pressed against the window, and you were bored out of your mind waiting because we understood waiting to just be the passive, sit back, do nothing, and get to that point in time that we long for. This morning, we get to do some cool things. We get to really wrap up our Advent series. We get to look ahead into the Bible series, and we're going to see a, just a really unique connection between these two and how they're linked and why they're important. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper as a church family. All these things, all of them, around the central theme of waiting well, faithfully waiting. Think about that. We wait as believers, we wait for the king. Christmas, if anything, should point our attention in that direction. And so we wait, but we do not wait passively. We don't just sit and do nothing and pass the time. Instead, as Jesus followers, we are called to wait actively. Jesus followers seek the king while we wait. Jesus followers seek the king. See, it's impossible. It's just impossible for a Jesus follower to not follow Jesus. It's in the definition of what it means to be an authentic Christian. It means we follow Jesus. He is our king. He is our Lord. He is our savior. He sets our direction. He sets our steps. We look to him. We seek him because he is the treasure of our souls. He is the treasure. And so we seek him. It is active. And the Bible is filled. It is just filled with testimonies of past saints who sought the Lord, who waited faithfully, actively in worship seeking him. 
They're just beautiful testimonies. Throughout the pages of Scripture, there are shepherds and kings and beggars and rulers. There are rich and poor, friends and enemies, oppressed and privileged. There are single and married. There are male and female. There are old and young. There are Hebrew and Gentile. And they all, all of them, Jesus followers from vast difference, all of them, surrendered their life to one king, to the king. And all of them from all those backgrounds sought him actively. And they all would be the first to tell you that they are not the subject of their story. Jesus is their treasure. He is the object of their worship. And so they waited for him. They wait for him actively, actively, not passively. And one such example we see in the Christmas story is the example of Anna. She is one of these saints who waits well, waits actively, and finds Jesus the treasure of her soul. And so I, I want to take us through the account of Anna. Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Apparently, 84 is when you are called advanced in years, right? Even Scripture doesn't just say she's old, right? She's old, right? It's there. She's advanced in years. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She spent her whole life here. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the only time in scripture that Anna is mentioned. This is it. It's just right here in Luke chapter 2, and it is a descriptive account of a credible witness. A credible witness. Those are important, especially in Hebrew history as the law is given to them. Her account is directly connected to Jesus being presented at the temple. And so it is directly linked with Simeon. So Jesus is taken as a child to the temple. And there he is recognized and exalted as the Messiah as the savior of the world, not just by Simeon, but also by Anna. So while linked with Simeon, Anna, what I want you to see is not just, her, her testimony isn't just with his, she is her own unique witness that proclaims Jesus is the Messiah. That's important, even going back to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and the law, there were always to be two witnesses. And so we see this here in her testimony. She marks a second witness at the temple that says this child is no ordinary child. This is the child that will bless the world. This is the Messiah. This is the one who will redeem the nations. And is introduced as a prophetess. Verse 36 says, the prophetess Anna, 
Minimally, here's what we know this means. Minimally, she knew the prophecies of the Old Testament. She understood the Messiah was coming. She understood what was said about him. And she recognized Jesus as the Messiah and Savior. We can talk more about what that might mean in a minute. If we have time, we'll get to that. But minimally, we have to understand she knew the prophecies that were revealed by God to his people. And she identified Christ as the Messiah. She was a Hebrew. She was of the tribe of Asher. This goes back again to her credibility as a witness. She was old. She was advanced in years. She had been around the law and she had been at the temple and she had served her life. She was a widow. Verse 36, having lived with her husband for seven years, seven years married from when she was a virgin, then as a widow until she was 84. She has lived the vast majority of her, of her life as a widow in first century Israel. That would be a really hard life. She would have very, very little. She would be poor and she would be pitied. But still, she would have options. And she chose to live her life undivided moving forward in worship she committed her life to worship she was devoted and undivided verse 37 she did not depart from the temple Anna's life centered around worship there were living quarters at the temple for people who helped out at the temple perhaps she lived and she actually stayed there Perhaps she came every day and just consistently worshiped. But what we know is that her life is marked by daily worship. Daily worship. Anna is an example of a Jesus follower who actively waited. Actively waited. Pursued it in her life. Sought the Messiah. Sought Jesus. Her example is not a prescriptive command. But it is a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture to us today and one that we can learn a lot from. So I want to walk you through it and I want to just bring out four big ideas, things that uh, can help steer us as we too now wait for the return of the King. See, we too, coming out of Advent especially, we know we are waiting for the return of the King. We find ourselves in a similar situation to that of Anna. And what I want you to see in her example is, and there are some really good things that can shape how we actively wait. First, we should seek the king through sacrificial worship. Anna is an example of sacrificial worship. She laid down her life. She gave her life. Authentic worship is always sacrificial. She built her life around worship. She built her life around it. See, today we're so tempted to add worship to our life. We like want to schedule it and set it over here and put it in this time slot. And when it's convenient and when I don't have excuses, I'll get to it. And when it's not hard, I'll do it. And when I feel like it, I'll do it. And we get all these things around the idea of worship. But Anna centered her life around it. You see, how does that happen? It happens because worship 
is our right response to who God is. See, as we just sang a song about the creator who is worthy of the worship of his creation, we must be reminded he is worthy of not just a part of our life, but he is worthy of our worship with every breath and every action we have. Anna pursued this. And when we abide faithfully, we will worship as an overflow of our position in Christ at every moment because it will be the recognition of who God is. And we won't make excuses for why we can't get to it in that moment, at that day, at that time. Listen, in 80-some years, right, Anna's got tons of excuses. Life happens to her too. And yet daily, night and day, she was devoted and known for her sacrificial worship. Second, we seek the king earnestly every day. Anna worshiped daily, verse 37. She's an example of diligent worship. She worshiped daily, night and day. Because authentic worship is present. Worship is now because we are constantly responding to the creator, to the sustainer. And life is daily. If there's anything we ought to just say amen to, even in just our nature, it's that statement. Life is daily. It is a grind. It does not always go the way that we want. And there's just routine after routine, task after task, minute after minute. Life is just daily. It is a grind. It's a grind. And yet, Anna purposed to live this life of daily worship. That takes diligence. That takes strategy. It even takes planning a little bit. You had to organize these things. You had to pursue it. It is a pursuit. And so as worship is an overflow of our abiding position in Christ, it is also the pursuit of us in our abiding relationship with Christ. In other words, there's effort in it. There's diligence in it. She models that grace-filled effort. Third, we seek the king through prayer and fasting. Anna is an example of dependent worship. She fasted and prayed daily. As you can see, I'm not in the daily fasting uh, routine yet. You know, I'm, I'm not quite there yet. I, I'm, I'm going to work on it maybe, but I'm not quite at the daily uh, fasting place yet. She did. She was in a regular routine of fasting and praying. Prayer and fasting are disciplines of worship. They're disciplines of worship. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going through these, these disciplines. He includes giving in this. And we do these things as an act of worship. And these two disciplines, these two spiritual disciplines specifically, show our dependence on God. When we pray, we acknowledge He has power. We have lost control. We acknowledge He is sovereign. We're not. We acknowledge we're in need of help. You are the helper. When we fast, 
We acknowledge you are the one who sustains us. You are the one who gives us every good blessing. These disciplines are disciplines that bring us back to our dependence on God. Therefore, they help us meditate, they help us focus on not just who we are, but ultimately who he is. They bring our attention back to him. They keep us centered in our abiding relationship with Christ, making much of God. By the way, real quick, if you're here and you haven't taken our spiritual discipline study group, I, I just want to give you that a plug. You should take that. It's a great course that will walk through these and other disciplines in the faith to help you grow. And if you, if, even if you're like, I don't know about all that, let me just say, email Wes Tucker. His email's on the website. Reach out to Wes and say, Daniel's talking about these spiritual disciplines. I have no idea what he's talking about. I, I want to grow in my relationship with Christ. I want to know more. Can you help me get started? And he will, I promise. He'll help kind of connect you, help you get some resources, and help you begin to engage in some of these disciplines. And that would be a great thing for you to do as you look ahead into 2020. But Anna is an example of dependent worship. She acknowledged God's role in her worship. Fourth, we seek the king through praise and proclamation. Anna gave thanks to God and spoke to all who were waiting for redemption. Anna is an example of outward worship. She praised God and spoke to all. Here's practically what's happening. Anna recognizes, well, this is the blessing of all blessings, right? This is Jesus, right? Jesus is here. God has sent a Savior. But what she is acknowledging is that every blessing comes from God. And this certainly is a blessing. Praise God. You have not abandoned us. You have sent us a Redeemer. You have sent us a Savior. Praise God. Then somebody walks by. Hey, you, did I tell you what God has done? What God said he would do. See, watch this. Here's what's happening. In the worship, in the recognition that it is God who gives blessing, Anna cannot help but say, God has done, God is doing, and God will do. She's not just saying it because there's some, like, like I'm trying to necessarily win something or convince something or get some argument or create some culture. Here's what she's saying first and foremost. God is worthy to be praised. See, when we share the gospel, when we make Jesus known as a church, first and foremost, it isn't, it really isn't about the conversion of the other person. We long for that, we want that. But ultimately, when we make Jesus known, we do so first and foremost as an act of worship because he is worthy to be made known. It's a great barometer to measure where we're at in our daily worship, where you're at in your daily worship. Anna worshiped outwardly by making Jesus known to all who would hear. We're tempted to hide our worship. I am. I am. Anna's a beautiful picture 
of faithfully waiting. She is. And as our Advent series ends, we wait. We wait. We wait for the return of the King, and we do not wait passively. We wait actively. Jesus' followers seek the King while we wait for his return. We seek the king while we wait for his return. And with all this in mind, I want to begin to transition your mind and your thoughts to the Bible series. And really to a larger discipline that it brings. This thought that we should study the whole counsel of Scripture. That we should be diligent to it. Devoted to it. That we should seek Jesus in the pages of his word. 2 Peter 3 gives us a clear command as we wait. I want, to go, I want to take you there, 2 Peter chapter 3, and I want you to hear this command in light of Advent, in light of this waiting, in light of the example of Anna, beginning in verse 13. But according to his promise, Christ, right, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells therefore beloved since you are waiting for these be diligent Peter's way of saying be active be active not passive be active to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now listen, there are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. Anybody say amen after our Roman study? Isn't that encouraging? I love that. Peter, an apostle, says there's some stuff in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Now listen, you're going to read through the scriptures with us, I hope, in 2020, and you're going to come across some things that are hard to understand. Here's what he says. They are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable. All right, now watch. This isn't an insult. Here's what Peter's saying. They don't know better. They're ignorant. They don't know better. They are not firmly established in the truth. They're unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures in other words they misinterpret the scriptures to their own end to their own destruction they twist the true meaning of the text from something the holy spirit inspired the author to write god's intended meaning and they twist it and they pervert it and they turn it to themselves to their agenda to their thought and it's to their own destruction He says in verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, you know this happens, that the scriptures are misinterpreted, that they are twisted, and it leads to your harm. Take care, Peter says. In other words, be careful, be diligent. Here's that call again to be active. Literally, the charge is be on guard. If you're on guard and you think you're being attacked, you don't just take a nap, right? You stay alert. 
be on guard that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. Warning, Peter says you're in danger. This doesn't just happen to the people out there. This can happen to you and to I. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't get carried away by the twisting of Scripture. Instead, grow in true grace and knowledge. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen, Peter said. See, Peter commands us to wait in active growth, in grace and knowledge. Neither one of those two things, by the way, are static in the believer's sanctification. We grow in both. We grow in grace, God-given Christ-likeness, the transformation of ourselves more and more into the image of Christ. We grow in knowledge, God-given wisdom, a deeper understanding of who he is and who he has called us to be. All these acts of grace, gifts of God, but he is growing us in these things. He is at work in us. In both of which, Peter rightly links to the discerning of Scripture. To the discerning of Scripture. These things are connected. So here's what I want you to hear. Authentic Jesus followers seek the king in the Scriptures while they wait for his return. Do you see the connection? So as we come out of Advent and as we say the whole counsel of Scripture matters, Interpreting it rightly matters. It's about waiting well. It's about waiting in worship. And so we're going to study the Bible in 2020 as a church. And I, I, I hope you will begin to prepare. I hope you will begin to set your heart and your mind to read the scriptures. And you don't have to read through with us, but I hope you will read through. A great question to ask yourself is, one, how many years have you been a believer? And how many years have you studied through the whole counsel of Scripture? Some of you might think, why? Why do this? Why, why, get, why read through some of those Old Testament passages? Why read through that? I've read through that before. Because we live in a culture of twisting and misinterpretation. A culture that minimizes true meaning for personal agenda and as a result we begin to lose our stable footing in the truth see second peter three is a direct call to diligent hermeneutics as we wait and hermeneutics is some big fancy word but here's all that it means it is our method of interpreting scripture it's our method of interpreting scripture We all do it. We all do it. Whether in ignorance or whether in diligence, whether wrongly or rightly, we interpret Scripture. There is a lens and a filter at which we look through. Done rightly, as Peter says, we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord. Done wrongly, we get twisted and lose connection to meaning, to truth. The plain thing is no longer the main thing. 
Scripture no longer interprets Scripture, but I begin to decide what is truly meant. This is dangerous. And it prevents us and hinders us from growth. And so I want to give you some quick handles as we come out of this and we look forward. And this is just straight teaching at the moment. I, I'm just kind of going through. I, you can take notes. I hope you will be disciplined enough to think through these things, meditate through these things, talk about them. But when we talk about hermeneutics, it's the method. Again, it's the lens at which we interpret Scripture to discover meaning and reach understanding. And just like a lens, if the lens is off, so too what you see will be off. It's our method of examining the text and asking, what does this mean? Meaning is the author's intent. That's just true in just general life. It, 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 when, when I have a thought in my mind and I say it, the meaning of whatever comes out of my mouth, in my case, which will often be just gibberish, right? That, that reality of my thought, what I intend, that's the meaning. That's the meaning. Luke, in this case, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had intentions he wanted to communicate. These intentions are the meaning. The authors of our 66 books of the Bible do not write with isolated intent. They write inspired by the Holy Spirit. And through them, God's very intent is presented. And we must acknowledge Holy Spirit inspiration when we study. This is not just somebody's opinion. This is God's intent. And at the same time, we cannot work around the human author either. We can't say, well, I know Peter said this, but here's what God meant. You can't do that. The inspiration of the Spirit works through the author. Meaning is not the property of the reader's interaction. It's just not. In our life groups, we're always tempted, you know, what does this mean? And it always amazes me how quick we are to just spout off anything that comes to mind, right? Well, I think, or it, here's what it means to me, you know, we say that stuff. That's not meaning. What you feel matters, but it isn't meaning. Meaning is bound to the author. I'll give you a funny example of something. A few weeks ago, I, I was closing the service, and I was thinking about how the ordinances are not just unique to Tri-Cities Baptist Church. And I said, the ordinances aren't special, did not finish my sentence, moved to the next thought, and went on. Well, if you just listen to me literally, I just said the ordinances aren't special. I didn't mean that. <laughs> That's what came out, right? I didn't mean that. In this case, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is perfectly connected to the communication, the author's thoughts. All these things come together, but that is where meaning is found. It goes back to the author's intent. Meaning is not the property of the independent text. In other words, it's not just defined by language alone, isolated from the rest of Scripture. This is why we're going to read through the whole of Scripture. If it were, for example, like Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. If I ask you how many of you believe that baptism is a saving act, I hope you would not raise your hand. But all if we have, if all we have is this passage that speaks to it, you should believe it. Right? We understand these things within the context of the whole of Scripture. You say, well, I take Scripture literally. You do, but you take it within its whole. 
You don't say God just owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You say he owns all the hills and all the cattle because you understand what's happening in that text. Meaning is defined by the author's intent. True understanding is thinking the author's thoughts. It's thinking the author's thoughts. When I think the author's intent, I understand. Again, understanding's not the reader's interaction. It's not the property of the isolated text. It is understanding the author's intent in, in Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, his revelation for us. See, Faithful application is purpose to wisely think as the author thought and in understanding act accordingly. And to do this well, to do this well, to not get twisted, we must seek Jesus in the whole counsel of his revelation from Genesis to Revelation. It is how we seek him actively. It is prescribed to us directly by Peter in 2 Peter 3. And without it, we are so tempted to get twisted to things that don't matter near as much. I, I, just a real quick example, and we'll close. I, I, we were going through Anna, and the, the truth is I've heard more of, about Anna in the last maybe couple of years than I really have in 20 years. And for better or worse, I think a lot of that is, uh, by the way, we're just going to be real for a moment, is in our culture, we have really moved and emphasized the role of women in leadership in the last few years and the way they've interacted in the church. And so it's been much more at the forefront of our conversations. And again, that brings good things. But it also brings certain lenses that we begin to look back and see. And so a sister wrote this, as long as Anna can be a prophet like John the Baptist, I can be a pastor. That's just bad hermeneutics. It just is. There's nothing in the context of what is happening here that links those things whatsoever. It says she's a prophetess. There, there are prophetesses in the Old Testament. There are four. There's Miriam, Deborah, uh, there's Isaiah's wife, uh, there's Huldah, there's a false prophet that's mentioned by name. In the New Testament, Luke uses the term twice here in just this isolated account along with like Philip's daughters in Acts. Uh, it, uh, the only other prophetess named in the New Testament is Jezebel in Revelation. Watch. My point is there's just not enough here to know exactly what's being described, and so it leaves us with a range. And you may say, I, 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 it's a position. It's a position. You may say, no, no, it's, it's a practice of a gift of prophecy. And there, there's kind of room for a range in there. To really study and get at it, kind of like a teacher. I hold a position as a teacher, ordained, affirmed by our church as one of our teaching pastors. But man, I'm just telling you, you're all called to be teachers. Hebrews 5 says, by now you should be a teacher. And so there's the practice of the teaching, so position, practice, and where all those things line up, there's really not enough in Scripture to validate such a statement, to connect those things. So here's what I'm trying to say to you as we read and as we study. Whether you lean, for example, in this case toward position or the practice or kind of the nuances, I'm not that overly concerned with it. But as a member of a church that I pastor and lead, my concern is that we study wisely. 
with exemplary hermeneutics that we do not take away from the scriptures. We do not add to the scriptures. We let scripture interpret scripture and we do this to stand firm, stable in the full counsel of God's word. Why does all this matter? Because Jesus' followers seek the king while we wait for his return. And we do so actively in diligence, knowing the danger of being carried away with error, longing to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and our King Jesus. And so we seek him as he has revealed himself to be in the full counsel of Scripture. Would you pray with me? Father, you have loved us enough to send your Son. He is our King. We wait for him. He is our Savior. We long to be transformed into his image. Give us diligence, give us faithfulness, give us boldness, give us wisdom to wait well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.